Hi, my name is Panta Kalhor and you're listening to Transition by Panta Kalhor Podcast. I created this platform to help you grow and move forward easier through your transition, whether in parenthood, job transition, healing journey, or starting a brand new life. Episode 135, Fertility Empowerment Show. Childhood Trauma, Hormone Imbalance, and Fertility with Dr. Janelle Lewis, Naturopathic Doctor. Dr. Janelle Louis is a licensed naturopathic doctor who specializes in helping people who struggle with stress and anxiety events during their childhood. And she actually helped overcome their problem with the reproductive concern. So I have her here. She's going to talk about how childhood traumas can affect fertility issues. Welcome to my show, Janelle. I'm so happy to have you. And I'm so grateful to have naturopathic doctor in this show because I know this field is not really known for everybody. Mm-hmm. And I just want to make an awareness <laughs> to introduce you because I know you are doing amazing jobs with this field Mm -hmm. and I really wish uh, to know more about you and your job and what you're doing exactly. Okay, thank you so much for having me. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to share with your audience today and um, I'm looking forward to it. My pleasure. All right, all right, first tell me about yourself. Mm-hmm. Why did you become naturopathic doctor? I know this field is still <laughs> not for everybody. I just want to have more awareness about it. Mm-hmm. So I actually um, first became interested in naturopathic medicine because my mom had um, some, some struggles with her mental health. So I grew up in, in a, an environment where my biological father was chronically unfaithful to my mom. So he cheated on her a lot um, for many years. And um, it led to my mom having significant anxiety, depression, and panic attacks. And so um, she eventually um, divorced my father and uh, we moved to the United States. I was born in Trinidad, so I grew up in the Caribbean. Um, But when she moved to the United States, she still had this residual, these residual effects. So her mental health was still affected by the things that she had experienced. And so I was with my mom um, and she ended up being put on three different psychotropic medications. And um, she, she came to me one day and she said, you know, Janelle, I've noticed that while I'm on this medication, um, I'm experiencing more anxiety and panic attacks than I was experiencing before I started taking the medication. So I want to get off of the medication. So I went with her to see her psychiatrist and um, he wasn't happy about her wanting to get off of the medication, but he eventually told us the weaning protocol. Long story short, she tried to wean off of the medication. She was able to get off of the first one, but the second one, um, she wasn't really able, she ended up in the ER with stroke-like symptoms and we later learned that they were withdrawal symptoms. So that kind of, I had always wanted to be an allopathic physician actually, but that kind of led to me really reconsidering the trajectory of my life. And so I was, you know, I started thinking like, is this really what I want to do? Um, 
And around that same time, I met someone who was a naturopathic physician. And she told me how she works with the body instead of against it, and how she um, tries to support the body so that um, the body is better able to, you know, when you give the body everything that it needs, it's able to respond to that, that um, improved environment, and then healing comes about. And so I really resonated with her methodology. And so that's what led to me looking into naturopathic medicine. And then that is what eventually led to me becoming a naturopathic doctor. Wow. So did you help your mother? Yes, I did. Yes. <laughs> yes. So yes. So yeah, so um, sorry, I forgot that part. So she was eventually able to get off of all of the, all three of the meds. Wow. And I was able to help her to um, manage her anxiety and depression to the point that um, she's not depressed at all. And she does have, she's a teacher. So at the beginning of the school year, she does experience some anxiety, but she manages those using um, natural supplements. So she's not on any medication for any psychotropic wow. medication now. I'm really amazed. Yeah. I know the power of naturopathy, really, because, you know, your body can heal itself. And with the interference of drugs and medication, we try to um, imbalance our body somehow. <laughs> and if your body have this power to get uh, to healing points again, so why not? Why we don't use nature? Why we don't use the medicine that is already in the nature and doesn't need any chemical interferences, mm -hmm. right? right? So um, do you have any presentation right now to show us? I know you're going to talk about how childhood trauma affects infertility i know about the infertility because i wasn't there i was diagnosed with unexplained infertility and then i realized at that point when the doctor say that there is nothing else we can do for you there are still other solution other things coming to help you especially uh, naturopathic uh, or holistic medicine, whatever field you're thinking, like homeopath, acupuncture, I really, really believe in it. And I know that PTSD, because I'm PTSD coach as well, PTSD and traumas in childhood can really affect your body, because this is mind and body working together, right, as a whole, to help you to heal. So if you have two patients, same diagnosis, one of them heal faster than another one. Why? Because the mind and body are connected, mm. right? Right. Yes. Okay. Tell me about it. Okay. So um, can I, am yes, I able to share I'm going to share. Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Okay, can you see my screen? Yes, I can. Okay. All right, so I am going to just skip ahead here. Uh, so we've talked about that. So the things that I want to talk about today are, let me just see this. Okay, there we go. Exactly how experiencing stressful events during childhood can impact fertility in adulthood. I also want to talk about thyroid health and fertility in the context of childhood stress. 
And then I want to share a few of the recommendations that I typically make as a part of my balance framework to help individuals improve their thyroid function, fertility, and overall health um, in, in people who've experienced early life stress. All right. Okay, so early life stress can be thought of as anything that chronically elicits the stress response in childhood. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about the way that this is perceived in the literature. And then I'm also gonna talk about how it actually happens in our bodies. But for now, I wanna say that anything that chronically elicits the stress response in childhood can lead to changes in our brains and in our bodies. And these changes can then increase our risk for over 30 different chronic conditions including impaired fertility. So when we experience something acutely stressful, so let's say that we're just driving and someone swerves in front of our car, um, that leads to like, you know, you feel stressed, you're like, oh my goodness, what do I need to do? And you kind of get prepared to meet that stressor. So that would be an acute stressor. What happens then is let's say the person immediately gets back into their lane, right? And when they do that, the stressor resolves and then your body just kind of calms back down. So in something like that, acute stress, what we're thinking about is we're thinking about the sympathetic nervous system. And the sympathetic nervous system is actually stimulating the adrenal medulla to reduce epinephrine, also known as adrenaline. But when we're talking about chronic stress, we're talking about something different. What we're talking about is the HPA axis. So this is the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, and this is what controls our chronic stress response. And when I say chronic stress, I'm talking about something that either happens repeatedly, um, so it's something that happens and that stresses you out for um, a prolonged period of time, or I'm talking about something that happens once, and then the effects of it kind of um, continue to stress you out over time. So an example of something that happens repeatedly would be let's say, for example, um, you're bullied every day that you go to school. So that would be um, a, a, a recurrent chronic stressor. Whereas if your parents get divorced, right, you think of that as they only get divorced once, but then the effects of their divorce can, can kind of stress you out um, multiple times. So those, those are the two categories of chronic stress um, that we're talking about here, right? So when you experience something that's chronically, psychologically stressful, the hypothalamus secretes something that's called, um, that's known as CRH, so corticotropin releasing hormone. And then corticotropin releasing hormone then goes to the pituitary gland, which is also located in your brain, and it causes the release of ACTH. So that's adrenal corticotropic hormone, sorry about that. And then the ACTH travels to the adrenal glands. And so when it's at the adrenal glands, it's going to stimulate the adrenal cortex this time. So before with acute stress, we talked about the adrenal medulla, but now with chronic stress, we're talking about the adrenal cortex. So this is the cortex or the cortices of the adrenal glands, and they secrete cortisol. So cortisol is our main stress hormone when we're talking about chronic stress. Now, when we experience these types of, um, any type of stressful thing during childhood, it changes our brain and it also changes our body. And this is how. So let's say a person is chronically stressed um, in childhood because they are being, um, being bullied. Let's just use that example. Let's say they're being bullied. 
so what happens is that the body kind of says, hey, we were expecting for our stress levels or cortisol levels to be at a two, but it seems like normal is more like a five. So the body just the body and the brain are still developing, so they're still kind of getting used to what's what's normal for this person. And so what it does is um, it just kind of says, let's just accept the fact that normal is more like a five. And so what happens is you have what's known as HPA axis hyperactivity. So this leads to your cortisol levels. And in some people, not everyone who experiences early life stress has this, but many people do. It leads to cortisol levels being slightly elevated, even at baseline. So even when the people are not, not even, um, not really stressed, so not um, significantly stressed, right? So this HPA axis hyperactivity is something that we see in people who have experienced early life stress. And this is problematic for fertility and for a lot of other chronic diseases because, or a lot of other chronic conditions rather, because of cortisol's ability to affect other body systems. So if you think about it, your body doesn't need, let's say you're running from a lion, right? You don't need to be fertile in that moment. You don't need to be able to have a baby at that time. Your body's job at that moment is to get you out of there, right? To keep you alive, to keep you safe. And that's what cortisol is doing. That's what cortisol does. And so in order to accomplish all of its um, purposes, so this goal of keeping the person alive, cortisol can actually change um, other body systems, right? So cortisol's effects, in order to properly do its job, cortisol can alter our reproductive system, our gastrointestinal system, our endocrine, other endocrine functions, so things like um, your blood sugar control, things like that, cardiovascular system, so it can increase, it can lead to um, elevated blood pressure, in the long term, it can alter our immune systems and increase our risk for autoimmune disease. It can alter our nervous systems and it can alter our weight control. So cortisol can really um, lead to changes in various parts of our bodies. That's why when the medical doctors cannot find anything, they say that's because of stress. <laughs> and it's true, and it's true. Because stress is root of many, many things in your body, yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, <laughs> it really does. And especially when you experience these things during childhood, because the brain and the body are just, um, they're so vulnerable because they're still developing. And so your body, you know, it just can lead to these long-term changes that then can go with us into adulthood. And, um, you know, it can affect us in, in various ways until we, actually become aware of what's going on and take the, the necessary steps to change, um, to change, to address the effects. Yes, I actually talked with one of the psychiatrists and she said, if the PTSD doesn't resolve in your adulthood can show itself, mm -hmm. even if you may not have problem for a long time, but there mm -hmm. are a lot of triggers that finally can show up. Right, and then you can see the effect. Um, the, the effect usually when you feel that you you are not fertile, mm -hmm. or you have chronic disease. These are all uh, back to unprocessed PTSD. Right, absolutely. I really, really believe that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the traditional view of adverse childhood experiences includes these 10 things, right? 
So we're usually talking about a 10 point scale. And um, for each one of these things, they are going to assign a point. So if you experience, let's say five of these things, then they'll say, well, your A score is five. <clears throat> so these things include abuse. So physical, um, verbal or emotional abuse and sexual abuse, and then household dysfunction. So things like your parents being separated or divorced, um, parent being um, in jail or prison, domestic violence or so violence among caregivers, substance abuse in the home or um, caregiver depression or other mental health concerns. So these things constitute household dysfunction. And then we have neglect. So physical neglect, so not having the food, clothing, shelter, things like that, that every child needs to thrive. And then emotional neglect. So that would be like not feeling like your parents love you or um, like they're emotionally available to you or that they're there to protect you, things like that. So if you look at the research on adverse childhood experiences, you're gonna most likely see one or more than one of these different ACEs um, being looked at. But I believe that these are not the full extent of how early life stress affects us. Because if you think about it, the body doesn't say, if you're being chronically bullied every day, um, the body doesn't say, oh, you know what? Just kidding, you know, this is not, um, we're, we, this is really stressful, but we're not actually being abused at home. We're just being bullied by someone. So don't have HPA access um, hyperactivity today. The body doesn't say that. The body doesn't really distinguish between um, the source of the stress in that way. And if you look at the, the, some of the newer research, it's actually looking at other things that can elicit the stress response outside of these 10 things. And it's really supporting this idea that people, regardless of the source of the stress, if a person is experiencing early life stress, then it really leads to this HPA axis dysfunction that I've been talking about. And so some of the other stressors that, um, I'm sorry, did you want to say something? No, I'm just, it's interesting for me. I'm just mm -hmm. looking at this categorization. Mm -hmm. And as you say, yes, you cannot just limit Mm -hmm. yourself to this there are lots of things around it mm -hmm. yes yeah so so my you know some of the other things that i believe chronically elicit the stress response in a similar way and um, the research supports some of these as well are bullying childhood cancer poor communication in the household so your parents never really telling you that they love you or things like that being raised in a war-torn country um, the death of a parent or even of a sibling, sibling rivalry, if it's really intense, can lead to chronic stress. Um, being an adoptive child and just kind of like wondering why your parents chose the route that they did, all of these things, being in a house fire, all of these things can really elicit the stress response chronically in children. Um, and, you know, they can lead to HPA axis hyperactivity. All right, so I wanna talk about just one way that these HPA axis changes or these brain and body changes can affect our fertility and that is thyroid health. So that's what I will um, spend the majority of the rest of the time talking about. So just like we had the HPA axis, we also have the HPT axis. So we have the hypothalamus, the pituitary, and again here, the pituitary, the pituitary is going to secrete TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone, and then TSH is going to go to the thyroid, which is located in the neck, and it's going to cause the thyroid gland to secrete our thyroid hormones. Um, the most potent one is going to be T3, and then we have T4 and other thyroid hormones as well. 
but um, when we have this hyperactivity of the HPA axis, it can also present as hyperactivity of the HPT axis or hypoactivity of the HPT axis. And I'll get into that in a little bit. Um, I'm going to ask you some question about this, maybe later. I'm not sure how you go further mm. with these slides. Mm. But I've heard um, from a medical doctor, I had an interview with her, that uh, thyro uh, when you're talking about the thyroid, like um, regular tests, T T3 or T4 or TSH, these are not really enough um, to uh, diagnose your problem. You may have um, other, um, like more holistic mm -hmm. <laughs> or uh, more detailed test about mm -hmm. the thyroid yes. because not everything is um, in medical can be diagnosed there and you may need to go to functional medicine or mm -hmm. somebody who has this ability to give you this test is that true yes. Yes, yes, and I'm absolutely going to talk about that. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. You are on the right track. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, so um, the thyroid con controls our growth, our development, and our metabolism. And it also plays an important role in fertility and in fetal development. Now, if your thyroid is not functioning optimally, then that can lead to you experiencing um, having difficulty conceiving. It can lead to recurrent miscarriages. It can lead to um, less successful IVF cycles, and the research supports all of this. Okay, so I just want to look at a few studies that kind of talk about how early life stress can increase our risk for um, subclinical hypothyroidism. So in this one, or for, for thyroid disorders in general, so this one is about subclinical hypothyroidism. So the study says, um, our findings suggest that there is a substantial and clinically relevant increased risk for thyroid dysfunction during pregnancy among women exposed to abuse and neglect in their childhood. And this could potentially have adverse consequences for fetal brain development. So here, basically what they're saying is that women who've experienced early life stress tend to have um, higher TSH levels than um, women who did not, right? And I don't want any of your viewers to get stressed because of anything that we read here. I'm going to talk about, you know, some things that we can do um, towards the end to help kind of mitigate the effects of these um, HPA axis changes and the other brain and body changes that take place um, that take place when we experience early life stress. So just yeah, hold I'm on. I'm sure we will. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. Okay, so, and then this study here basically um, found that there is an 80% increased risk of hospitalization with an autoimmune disease, a T helper 2 type autoimmune disease. So that would include Graves' disease and Hashimoto's thyroiditis. So those are the two um, autoimmune, the two most common autoimmune thyroid disorders. So basically people who experienced, who had an ACE score of two or higher were 80% more likely to be diagnosed with Graves or Hashimoto's compared to people who had an ACE score um, of one or zero. And um, it says these findings are consistent with recent biological studies on the impact of early life stress on subsequent inflammatory responses. So here we see that, um, you know, early life stress increases our risk for both autoimmune thyroid disorders and um, non-autoimmune thyroid disorders. And so it's really, it really affects the thyroid function um, across the board. And as I shared, 
impaired thyroid function can lead to impaired fertility. So this is highly relevant to us. Now we're gonna talk about um, the TSH as a screening tool. So the TSH has a pretty wide range um, as far as um, the, the reference range is concerned. So the reference range is typically 0 0.450 to 4.500. Sometimes it can be um, as high as five, but the most common range in the range in the labs that I usually use um, go up to 4.5. But basically with, when we look at the TSH, the optimal range is within that reference range, right? So even though if you have a TSH of four, that is technically considered normal, the research shows that having a TSH that's that high, even though it's considered normal, will actually lead to thyroid symptoms. And so optimally, we wanna see the TSH between 0 0.9 and 1.5. Um, but up, up, I personally like to see it from 0 0.9 to two. Okay, so 2.5 is still technically considered desirable, but I like to see it below two, two or below. So between 0 0.9 and two. So I have a question. Um, again, I talked to that medical doctor <laughs> and mm -hmm. she had the same issue with mm -hmm. thyroid. And she said, my test uh, always wa wasn't uh, desirable, but was not optimal. And they mm -hmm. couldn't actually show me that optimal uh, domain. Can you, this range optimal, can you, uh, can you see it in all tests or you have to have extra tests? So what I do is I basically, I, I learned um, that this is the optimal range. And so what I do is I just run the regular TSH and then I just look at the values and disregard their reference range. And I just know mm -hmm. what I'm looking for. But as far as, yeah, but as far as a test that shows the optimal range, um, I can't think of a, a lab company off the top of my head that shows the optimal range like that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So um, I had a few things here that I wanted to show about just using the TSH as a screening tool. But now that I know that your audience has already seen this, I'll just kind of go through it a little faster. So this is um, the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists. And here they said, even though a TSH level between three and five is in the normal range, it should be considered suspect since it may signal a case of evolving thyroid underactivity. So basically what they're saying is here is three, between a three and a five, so a three and above, it's still within the normal range, but uh, you know, if someone is there, we should really be looking into other causes or trying to figure out if their thyroid function is really um, where it should be, right? Okay, and then we have this study, which says, this is really interesting. So this says, TSH upper reference limits may be skewed by TPO antibody negative individuals with occult autoimmune thyroid dysfunction. So what they're saying here is that when we came up with the normal reference range, for the TSH, we may have included some people who had hidden thyroid disorders. And so because we thought they were healthy and we kind of like took an average of all the people who appeared to be healthy and came up with the reference range, um, this is ending up being problematic because you know now it's kind of like artificially inflating the normal range for the TSH. This is reason for many infertility issues. 
Mm-hmm. I know that because uh, I have clients with thyroid issues. And usually when they say, oh, my thyroid is normal. But when you look at the symptoms, then mm-hmm. you, um, you say, oh, you are suspicious. You have to go and check. Mm-hmm. And then you see, no, they are not optimal. Mm-hmm. And exactly that's the point. In many cases, women even are not aware of this. Yes. That's the underlying issue for many, many infertility. I'm not saying infertility. I don't believe infertility. Mm-hmm. I'm saying that's unexplained fertility issues. And mm-hmm. as soon as you have these thorough tests on you, yeah. then you realize, oh, that was a problem. Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree 100%. Yes. Okay. And I, I just want to take a moment to thank you for really raising awareness um, about these issues because it's just so, it's really a breath of fresh air to see people, you know, just informing people and helping people to be able to take control of their health and to, um, you know, make the decisions that are, that are best for them, you know, because if you lack the information, yes. you don't know what you need to do. And Ooh, so I just wanted to and thank general, you. That's a, the problem for this world right now is that you access to many, many information. Mm-hmm. And you don't know if they're valid or not. Absolutely. Working with naturopath and uh, all the holistic medicine and medical doctors, I try to, I'm I'm writing a book actually regarding this uh, fertility issues and thyroid and everything. Mm -hmm. And I I just realized that uh, when I talk to this person, medical doctors i just realized they know so many things and uh, you cannot find this exactly through the web you know Mm -hmm. because you don't know exactly where to go and source them Mm -hmm. i try to uh, add extra resources adding to their what what they wrote for me Mm -hmm. because we had interviews with them and then i said oh i added this reference and she said no i don't accept this reference because it's not validated you Mm -hmm. see there are lots of lots of information back there and you don't know which one really yeah Yeah, (laughs) that's that's the purpose or try to um, bring real doctors, real naturopathic doctors, real holistic medicine, homeopath, because these resources are validated. Mm-hmm. You know exactly that's true. That's they have to go and find their problems. And it's much easier this way. When you have this knowledge, then you just go through your body, scan yourself. Okay, maybe I have this issue. Maybe mm-hmm. I have these symptoms. Maybe I have to go through a um, full test for mm-hmm. my thyroid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Let's see. Okay, so, and then I had um, this this one that I wanted to share as well. So the title of the study is, does TSH reliably detect hypothyroid patients? And they concluded this. They said, although measurement of TSH is a convenient screen for thyroid function, it is influenced by many factors, which may affect its overall reliability. It says, we believe thyroid function should be assessed by more than a single test. And this is exactly what we were talking about. So I wanted to share the tests that I do for patients who, where I suspect um, suboptimal thyroid function and at minimum. Mm -hmm. So at minimum, 
I will do these five tests. So I do the TSH, the thyroid stimulating hormone, because it does give us valuable information. You know, it's just, I don't believe it should be done as a standalone test, right? So I do that. I do the free T3 and the free T4 to see where the thyroid hormones are. Why do you say free T3, free T4? I've, I've, I've seen T3 and T4, but you, you added free, I don't know, because I'm not ex, a specialist. Yeah, so some people some people do total T3 and total T4, but oh. the free mm-hmm, the free T3 are going to be the T3 that's not bound in bound to proteins in the body. So this I is what I see. Free. That's why. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no problem. So I do uh, yeah, so I do the free T3 and free T4 and then antithyroperoxidase antibodies and antithyroglobulin antibodies. So, so are they available in um, regular laboratories? Yes, they okay. are. Mm-hmm. Good. But most doctors will not do them um, just as a screening lab because people are still doing probably what they learned in school to do the TSH as a screening lab. And um, so people aren't really aware. I have actually had patients um, come in with all of the symptoms of, of thyroid dysfunction. And I do these labs and I discover that even though the TSH is still in the normal range, they have antithyroperoxidase antibodies out of this world. So they have a raging autoimmune disorder and that's why they're feeling so terrible. But if they had only done the TSH, they would not even know that their thyroid was the, func- the problem. They would think that their thyroid function was still you know, within the normal range. But what happens is you have the, the thyroid, you can see the antibodies first and the body is really good at compensating. So the body's gonna compensate and compensate and compensate until it can't compensate anymore. And then when it can't compensate anymore, that's when the TSH starts rising. So by that point, you already have a raging autoimmune fire that is gonna be really difficult to put out. You know? Whereas if you just, you know, if they have all the symptoms and you run the antibodies and you discover, you catch the autoimmunity early, then you can really address the autoimmunity so that they won't have to end up um, being on medication for the rest of their life. I'm going to add something here that's mm-hmm. amazing that you as naturopath doctor do this test. Because as awareness, not everybody know that naturopathic doctor have this availability, I mean, ability to mm-hmm. order these tests. Mm-hmm. Because you always have this in your mind that uh, only medical doctors can do it. So mm-hmm. it's good to know, mm-hmm. I mean, for even for my, my audience, this is naturopathic doctor and she has amazing knowledge about this thyroid issues. And, you know, mm-hmm. no, I, I actually had lots of research and interviews about the thyroid, but right now I can see it in my eyes that you can have like different tests and it's not really... Uh, confusing Mm -hmm. even me as somebody who doesn't have medical experience (laughs) i mean i'm not medical doctor but i can understand this because everybody knew about t3 t4 i mean with a little research you can understand about this whole test Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah so there are there are other tests that i might do depending on how the patient is presenting but at minimum these are the tests that i would do if I'm suspecting any, or if I'm just wanting to evaluate thyroid function, or if I'm suspecting that there may be something going on with the thyroid. 
Okay, so here is my takeaway for um, thyroid function. Suboptimal thyroid function can affect fertility. If your TSH is above 2.5 and you have symptoms of thyroid dysfunction, then be proactive about your thyroid health. Talk with your provider about your concerns and about running additional tests. While conventional medicine typically only offers treatment for overt dysfunction, there are steps that you can take to safely optimize your thyroid health using more integrative therapies before you need to resort to meds. So you don't have to wait until your TSH gets to 10, right? You can start taking steps right away to keep your autoimmunity at bay if that's what the concern is or to um, just improve your thyroid function in general if it's, you know, a non-autoimmune um, hypothyroidism or something you know, like I that. I love it. I love it. Like, you know, I was thinking about this conventional medicine. Doctors do a lot of great jobs. They save life. Yeah. But uh, the problem is there are lots of underlying issues uh, that is not going to be diagnosed by medical doctors. Mm-hmm. And um, I, uh, I had interviews with people, um, functional medicine practitioners. Mm-hmm. They had these issues of chronic disease for, um, for years. And after they realized they had this problem, they said, okay, I shouldn't have this chronic disease. They should have, it should have some uh, root, root cause yeah. at mm-hmm. the back end. So when they realized which, uh, which uh, blood test they have to do, then uh, they go and discover it themselves and order it to their medical doctors. Medical doctors were really surprised. How do you know about this? No, mm-hmm. I cannot do this. So, so unwillingly, the medical doctor actually ordered this blood test. And mm-hmm. wow, after 10 years, she realized, yes, that was her problem and she could discover this. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the point. If naturopath doctors and medical doctors, holistic medicine, they can work together, they can really save a lot of women's life, like yeah. especially infertility. Mm-hmm. As I, I had the same issue, I know I was at that shoes. And as soon as I had my baby and hold her in my arms, I said, this is my mission. I have to help people. Mm-hmm. And because I'm not medical doctor, that's why I try to bring all of you to just um, give them this information that yes, you can find and discover because there is no nothing in, in this world as unexplained. Everything mm-hmm. has explanation, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love yeah. that. Great. Okay, so then I just wanted to share um, a few of the recommendations that I typically make to, um, to help people who've experienced early life stress to optimize their health and their fertility and um, all of that. So the first things that I wanna share, of course, I just, I just talked about this, is to get a comprehensive thyroid workup, right? You, TSH alone is not sufficient you need to get a comprehensive look into your thyroid function so that you can address any dysfunction that is there. Also, you want to get a comprehensive look into your reproductive hormones. So we're talking about things like estradiol. So um, estradiol, AMH, um, well, 
follicular stimulating hormone, um, luteinizing hormone, so LH, FSH, all of those things you want to do. Usually those are done on day three of the menstrual cycle. And then you also want to do progesterone, which is usually done on um, day 21. Well, five to seven days after ovulation. So if you don't ovulate on day 14, then, you know, you just five to seven days after you ovulate whenever you ovulate. Um, so you want to make sure you get an in-depth look into your reproductive hormones. You also want to look at your blood sugar control. This is really important because it can significantly impair fertility if you have insulin resistance. So you want to look at your fasting insulin, your hemoglobin A1C. What is the HbA1c? Uh-huh, hemoglobin A1c. So that's really just a measure of how, how well your body is controlling your blood sugar. Hemoglobin uh, mm -hmm. okay. A1c, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then um, your fasting glucose. So the, all three of those are going to give you insight into your glycemic control. And then you want to look at things that give you information about, um, information about inflammation. So things like homocysteine, um, ferritin, and um, high-sensitivity C-reactive protein. So um, those three, well, ferritin is also related to iron, but um, it can, ferritin can be elevated if you have um, oh, high levels. Ferritin is the same as uh, iron, right? It's, it's related to iron. Related, related to iron. iron. What, what is the HSCRP? High sensitivity C-reactive protein. So it's, a, it's what's known as an acute phase reactant. So basically, if this level is elevated, it's a sign that there's inflammation somewhere in your body. It doesn't tell you where the inflammation is. So it could be, you know, maybe you have poor oral health or maybe you have um, poor gut health or something like that, but there's inflammation somewhere in your body. You know, I, I, I give you a really good example. I, I had asthma. Mm -hmm. I mean... In the beginning, I didn't have asthma. I just had uh, sinus, sinus uh, effect, mm -hmm. effect. And then uh, the doctor told me, I was like in 50s, 60s, 16, 16 year old. And the doctor said, you are allergic and these are the medication you have to take forever. And oh. it's not going to be cured. And I said, okay, I'm not going to use it. So I threw them away. <laughs> uh, after some time, I was, I thought I was healed. Uh, I was okay. Mm -hmm. Until uh, like in my 20s, I was in 20s, I was in university and I changed to another country. My situation and weather was changed. And then I, I was diagnosed with asthma. Before that, I didn't have any asthma. Mm -hmm. So then I realized uh, still, I know. I, I still have it. I still have asthma. I, I definitely go to naturopath doctor to actually find out why I have it. What is the root cause mm -hmm. of this? Um, because my asthma is, is not always there. So whenever I have cold or the weather change, uh, that shows. Mm -hmm. But these are the things that definitely have root cause. Mm -hmm. Even if um, you feel that you're allergic, even allergy, they may have some root cause. And um, my doctors, allergic doctors, even they, they couldn't realize it. They couldn't know that what is the reaction, what is the allergy. So I, I, this one still for me is not covered. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> so probably later we can, in another discussion, 
in another episode. Mm-hmm. We can talk about allergy and how we can discuss the how we can discover the root cause of allergy. Mm-hmm. Is yeah. that okay? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Great. Okay, so. Um, and then also you want to look at the typical labs that you do every year when you get a physical done. So CBC, you're going to look at your blood, looking for signs of infection, anemia, things like that. So that's your complete blood count. And then CMP, comprehensive metabolic profile, you're looking at things like your electrolytes, your liver health, things like that. And then um, lipids. So you're going to look at your cholesterol. And that's important because, you know, your body needs cholesterol to make your reproductive hormones. So you want to make sure that you have um, enough, but not too much of your lipids and then also vitamin D. So um, I so think these very- are the things you can order um, again from laboratory, normal laboratory, or you have to yeah. go because let's say me as somebody who, who doesn't have any like medical background, mm-hmm. can I go there and say, okay, can you order HBA monthly mm-hmm. or, mm-hmm. you know, or I have to go to naturopath doctor and ask them to order for me. You can actually go to a direct access labs company and um, get all of these lab tests done without a, a doctor's note. So if it's a direct access lab company, they have a doctor that will sign off on it and you just pay them the money and they will, you can run these labs. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So now when it comes to the interpretation, I highly recommend That's working the point. with someone. I'm looking at this as, as my audience because mm-hmm. my, many of my audience don't have medical background. Mm-hmm. So I don't understand really homocysteine. Um, I, I cannot even read it. Homocysteine. <laughs> <laughs> so, huh? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So any, I mean, direct access labs are really making it possible for people to take their health into their own hands now. So, I mean, it's, 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 I think it's good. Um, Some people see it as it could be threatening or it could even be dangerous if a person thinks that they know more than they actually know. But I, I, I think it's, it's beneficial. And um, because sometimes. This is the first time I've seen this, to be honest. Really? Like it's very, Nobody just give you this information as you see, mm-hmm. uh, because probably they, because they, they think that you don't understand about this. Yeah, yeah maybe. Yeah. 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 Okay. okay. Go ahead. All right. Okay. And then a few recommendations that I make to help people manage acute stress. So I have found implementing a morning routine to set the tone for the day to kind of set the intention for the day and help you help you decide that no matter what happens when you go out of that door, you're going to have a good day that day, you know, just really taking that time to prepare yourself for what you're going to face that day to be highly beneficial in addressing acute stress. Um, I've also found using a planner to get organized and to reduce overwhelm to be highly beneficial in addressing acute stress. Other things that I've found to be beneficial are taking time to reflect after each day and to express gratitude. I like to write down things that I'm grateful for. Um, these things kind of support parasympathetic nervous system health. So they, so they help you to, um, they help combat that fight or flight. So they promote that rest and digest kind of um, division of the nervous system. 
and then eating a diet that supports optimal vagus nerve function. So the vagus nerve is a cranial nerve that controls the parasympathetic nervous system response. So it controls that rest and digest, and it also um, plays a very important role in inflammation. And the vagus nerve is interesting because research shows that high fat diets actually kind of um, make it difficult for the vagus nerve to do its job. So I recommend, I typically recommend limiting high fat meals to um, three times per week at the most. And I recommend, you know, really um, increasing your intake of fruits and vegetables and um, other plant-based foods because I've found this to be extremely beneficial in promoting um, vagus nerve function. And especially, this is especially important in people who've experienced early life stress. All right. Nice stuff. And then um, as far as like chronic stress is concerned, I like recommending that people spend at least 20 minutes exposed to nature each day because the research is showing that being exposed to green space really cuts your cortisol levels. It significantly decreases your cortisol levels. So Not in Toronto. We don't have a green space. <laughs> <laughs> so so um, as much as you can. Okay, so... so even, even the snow is good. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that's true i mean being outdoors really is better than being indoors but if you can be exposed to like the canopies of trees um you know oh. so in the summertime like that's really beneficial you know, in toronto even during the minus uh, 15 they have some oh. uh some degrees take the kids outside to play hmm. uh, in daycares and wow. I was really, oh, how can you do this? Actually, <laughs> kids have snow pants. They cannot even move, you know. <laughs> <laughs> <So> <laughs> stress. Like my, my daughter uh, last year was there. Like uh, this year, because of COVID, I didn't send her. But um, this is a good practice even for them to have mm -hmm. a better uh, immune system. Yeah. Because they're living in this country with the snow and cold. Mm -hmm. And... Um, but the point is, she, for, for a while, she couldn't bear it, and she was sick all the time. Mm. But after some time, they get used to it. Yeah. So nature, even if, like, you're right, fresh air. Mm -hmm. Fresh air gives you a lot of great oxygen level and thinking. You can think better. Mm -hmm. There are lots of good things. Yeah, lots of benefits. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so and then with um, other things for chronic stress, for addressing chronic stress, is I would say consider adaptogenic herbs to modulate the stress response. What so is that it? Would be adaptogenic um, botanicals. So that would be things like reishi mushroom, shiitake mushroom, um, ashwagandha is my personal favorite, um, rhodiola, shizandra. These are all botanicals that help to modulate the stress response. So if your cortisol levels are elevated, they help to bring them back within the normal range. And so, you know, we already talked about why that's important for fertility and for um, addressing chronic disease risk in people who have experienced early life stress. Um, and then also, um, I recommend processing any unresolved grief or trauma that people may be carrying um, like from it. their past. Yeah, so that they can, you know, they can move forward. And then also okay. identifying and working toward changing any harmful thought patterns that may be affecting your relationships and your life. So those are the things that I typically recommend for people who um, have experienced early life stress and are um, 
wanting to um, conceive, right? Daniel, uh, I like the fourth point. Mm -hmm. You know, many of, I'm, t I'm, I'm telling you, 90% of my clients have work-related issues. Can you believe that? Mm -hmm. Because uh, they are really uh, fussy about their work. They have to go to work. They have lots of loads on their work. Mm -hmm. And they don't get too much rest. They always are stressed because they don't like commuting and at the bottom of their heart, they even don't like that work. <laughs> and that makes them stressful. That's why they cannot have their baby because uh, most of them, like most of their energies goes for their work rather than creating a baby. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. Let's see. And then this is my closing thought here. So I just want to say this to your audience. Dealing with impaired fertility can be very stressful. And it's possible for us to be so focused on the end result that we miss the beauty in the process. And I know it can be cliche. I know a lot of people say this, but um, it really is true. There's a reason why people say this. Um, so while trying to conceive, I recommend doing all that you can to focus on bettering yourself mind, body, and spirit so that you'll be prepared to receive the baby and to give him or her the very best environment when he or she arrives. Because we have to think about it, our bodies are really going to be the home for this baby for nine months. And the research really shows that the effects, that whatever is going on internally in our bodies um, can affect the developing child. And so if we're highly stressed and things like that, that can affect the child. If we are depressed and things like that or anxious, that can affect the child. So I recommend, you know, just really taking the time to work on you and trying not to be too stressed out about the end result, but just really, you know, taking every day as a gift and just, you know, like going through life day to day and just preparing, like receiving, preparing yourself to receive the blessing that's going to come in the form of this child. Beautiful. Beautiful. That is what, that's Thank all I wanted so to share today. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> Can I ask you a few questions about naturopath? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> um, let's say, look, who come to you? Like, as a question, because everybody first goes to medical doctor. When mm -hmm. uh, patients are referring to you, mm -hmm. I just want to know, because how do I know that I have to go to naturopath doctor? And what capabilities they have, how they can help. Yeah. In all honesty, the people who come to me, and I, I believe that it's probably true for most of my colleagues, are going to be the people who have tried everything else and they have not been able to find a solution. So we really work with the people who you know, are, can be viewed as like the most difficult cases because people don't really know about naturopathic medicine. So you have to really be in a state of like, I guess you could say like a state of desperation. Like I have to find someone who can help me with this because no one else, you know, can, has said that they can help me. And so those are usually the people who find my office and who um, end up coming to see me, the people who feel like they've tried everything. Um, unfortunately, now, I believe that things like this are going to raise awareness so that more people can, yeah. can come and um, kind of, you know, because naturopathic medicine is so 
beneficial at is so good at addressing things in the beginning it's unfortunate that usually we don't yeah they waste a lot of time yes and spend a lot of money and when they don't have anything to spend other other absolutely true naturopath do you do uh, acupuncture as well or as a practice so we were trained in acupuncture, but I do not do acupuncture in my practice. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Many naturopathic doctors do. Because I know a lot of naturopath doctors do acupuncture. They are trained uh, as functional medicine outside the naturopath. Mm-hmm. So um, I know naturopathic and functional medicine are very similar. Mm-hmm. They do lot of things together but naturopathic of course it's more trained because they are they study more than mm-hmm. functional medicine it's still i don't know the distinguish between them i know about the naturopath natural uh, you try to try you help the body heal itself mm-hmm. and you try natural remedies for it but what is the distinction between functional medicine and naturopathy the distinction is really going to be in the training that's received. The, um, so with naturopathic medicine, you're learning about these naturopathic therapeutics throughout your years of medical school, um, whereas functional medicine usually is, um, usually you're going to do some kind of program outside of your official education, so you don't really learn functional medicine in allopathic medical school. So that's the difference, but there is the reason you're confused is because there is a lot of crossover. So yes, exactly. Yeah. Can so you that's, stop that's, sharing your screen? Then we can. Yeah, let me get you know, um, how to do that. Oh, okay. Stop share. <laughs> okay, there we go. Yeah. So um, there's a lot of crossover. Functional medicine is supposed to. Um, it's concerned with finding the. I guess you could say the the identifying whether or not something is functional. So it's not like it's wanting to get to optimal health, whereas naturopathic medicine, like the premise is, okay, we are um, trying to work with the body to restore it to a place of health. It's the same thing. Um, People use the terms interchangeably. It really, I think the biggest difference really is in how you got the training. So the difference would be with the provider and not with, um, you know, yeah, mostly with the provider. So and the how medicine you're using, because I know about the homeopath as well, a lot of naturopath doctors uh, use homeopath remedies mm-hmm. in their practice. Yeah. Uh, do you also do it or you have your own remedies? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I don't use homeopathy either, but I was, I was trained in homeopathy. Um, and I believe that most, yeah, most, well, at least at my school, we had very exhaustive exhaustive or extensive education in homeopathy and a lot of people use it i personally don't use homeopathy just because um i i have other tools that i like to use to help um that i am able to use more reliably mm-hmm. um like i really love uh botanical medicine i that's like one of my favorite things is like herbs and different things like that um, and nutrients and things like that so homeopathy is not something that I, I'm not adverse to it, but it's just not something that I make a habit of using in my practice. So everybody has its own yeah. practice. 
yeah. in place. Mm -hmm. uh, I had another lovely lady and uh, she actually doing the naturopathic medicine and mm -hmm. she also um, founded Bowen College. I don't know if you know her uh, in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. So she actually um, uh, practiced another thing addition to naturopathic. Okay. So you see, everybody should find her way. But the, the point is about the holistic medicine, what I realized, and I really experienced it in my own problem mm -hmm. and you don't need to go uh, you know you try so many things and at the end of the day go to natural doctor yeah. and you know if i knew that really mm -hmm. i didn't spend so much money on ivf mm. i'm not saying ivf is bad or good because if your body is not ready if you have underlying issues, like as you say, thyroid or anything else, mm -hmm. so IVF doesn't work for you, and then you spend so much money. Yeah. And the problem is lots of people, uh, unfortunately, repeat the same treatments over and over again mm -hmm. without any cure, um, any curing for, your, for their underlying issues. And that's right. the point. They never can be treated they mm. just hope that maybe ivf work but yeah. I, i've seen there are lots of ivf warriors and one point they say i'm gonna stop i'm gonna go and check what's the problem with my with my body then they check that oh they have gut issues they mm -hmm. have you know they have liver issues they have a lot of like underlying and then after after surgery or after treatment they could back get back to IVF and I know a lot of them uh, could naturally conceive mm -hmm. <laughs> you know that's that's mm -hmm. interesting yeah you know Janelle I'm so happy and glad I'm so you know grateful to have you here mm -hmm. and hopefully this is gonna be warning to many fertility warriors to understand that there are lots of ways and that's the time to go and search for yourself mm -hmm. before going to expensive uh, treatments it's better you work hard on yourself first yeah if it's better you do a total checkup the whole checkup let's say if somebody come to you uh, from the beginning, say, okay, I'm like 40-year-old, I'm going to get pregnant. Mm -hmm. You definitely do the thorough checkup for her mm -hmm. before yeah. even wasting time to go to fertility clinics or any other places. They may get naturally conceived. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> they don't need to do all the expensive stuff. Or if they don't have any other resort like they definitely go should go to ivf to do this then at least they know where is the problem and after recovering from that problem mm -hmm. then they go to ivf or other yeah. yes and make it make actually conceiving or having the baby uh, more likely right? yes yes thank you so much for having us yeah thank you for having me i really appreciate the invitation and it's definitely been a pleasure yes thank you Please subscribe to Panta Kalhor Transition Channel and order my book Naturally Conceived through Amazon. Thank you for watching.